Good morning and welcome uh, to you and to my friends from down at in Sydney, CrossConnect, uh, GLOW students, welcome to you. GLOW's got a bit of a special place in my heart. Um, uh, my wife and I were just talking about that and she just sort of looked at me and went, I can't believe it's been, how long, 23? 23 years since you were a student and I'm not even going to try and count up since I was, a, I was such a bad student, I had to go back twice, so. Um, but the, the years that we had in Tassie in those days uh, that you're having now in Sydney are precious years, so let me just take the, the moment to chat to you guys directly. Um, you have no idea what God might be beginning right now, what he has already begun, but what he's beginning right now and the way that he might use this period of time to shape your life. And so I just want to um, commend you and thank you so much for investing into what God will do in the future, both in you and through you. Uh, and I want to challenge the rest of the church here today. Um, do not despise what God can do in a short period of time. Um, we overestimate. We overestimate what can be done in a short period of time, but I think we underestimate what God can do um, in general. So some of the younger ones here, not so young ones, I don't think there's a, Stu, is there a age limit on students these days or what? Probably around about 120. 120, all right. Um, hands up anyone here that's 120 or over. <laughs> all right, no excuses then. Go chat to uh, the team, Jonathan or Stuart, um, or any of the students, uh, I would really encourage you uh, to give yourself to what God might be doing in the, the future. Now, we're finishing off today a series in the book of Ruth. So if you grab your Bibles and turn to the book of Ruth, that's where we're going to be. I just want to um, help set the context a little bit here for our story in the book of Ruth again. I want you to remember that the very last book, uh, sorry, the, the very last verse of the book that precedes Ruth, which is the book of Judges, it says in chapter 21, verse 25 in that book, that there was no king in Israel, that everyone did what seemed right to him. There was lawlessness in Israel. It was a dark and desperate period of time in Israel's history. I also want you to remember the very first verse of the book of Ruth, Ruth chapter 1, verse 1, says, during the time of the judges. So we know that this story that we've been looking at for the last three weeks, which is a story of beauty, a story of hope, a story of what God can do to change lives, it was happening right in the middle of a dark and desperate period of time. Now, by nature, um, I have been accused on numerous occasions of being a pessimist. Unbelievable. <laughs> I know. You're a pessimist. I, I deny it 100%. I'm not a pessimist. I'm a realist. <laughs> All right? I'm a realist. <laughs> I hear some amens from people that I expected to hear amens from. <laughs> I, I, will, I will give the fact, though, that if things are a bit bleak, I do tend to just, you know, the lights, it's got dark, right? 
Um, some people are like, oh, but there's, there's still a little light somewhere. I'm like, yeah, yeah. So this has been a good reminder for me. There have been dark seasons in my own life where I'm prone to think God is not at work. Maybe you have felt the same. It's dark seasons of time in your own life, your own experience, your own walk with the Lord. Where you look at it and you think, how can God be at work? In those times, I want you to come back to this book, the book of Ruth. That in dark and desperate times, God was doing something. And he has done in your life in the past and in mine, he will do again in the future. So just for, um, for our own benefit, let's do a really quick recap before we hit chapter 4, which is where we're going to finish on in our series today. Chapter 1, recap of chapter 1. In the face of disaster and in the face of ruin... Ruth faces a crisis moment, remember, in chapter 1. And a decision had to be made. And she made a decision to that crisis. Will I stay in Moab, where there is security and where there will be a hope and where there will be um, personal benefit, Or will I go with my mother-in-law, Naomi, back to her home country in Israel? And even her own mother-in-law was saying, all that stands in front of you is bitterness. All that stands in front of you is a sense of a lack of hope, a lack of a future, a lack of security. And in that moment, on that road, halfway between Moab and Israel... She made her choice. And in the first week of this series, we looked at the fact that Ruth would rather have nothing with God than everything without God. That was the choice that she made. She said, I'm going to go with you. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. Do you remember that? But what she was choosing was a life of uncertainty, a life where there was no security and very little hope. But God was there. We discovered in that first week that emptiness is the best path to fullness. That it is often at our lowest and most desperate moment that God says, now let me work. That was week one. Last week, I heard that you spread out your picnic baskets and had a treat as Tim unpacked the middle two chapters for us. And I had the opportunity this week to sit and listen to Tim's message as it was recorded. Thanks, mate, uh, for stepping in. And what Tim did was he pointed us to Boaz. Let's see if I was listening well, if you were listening well. Tim pointed us to Boaz and showed us that he was a picture of an even better kinsman redeemer that we have in Jesus Christ. This this man called Boaz, the, the master, the lord of the harvest he was. But in 
in Boaz, we see through him. He's like a window and we can see something about Jesus that he fulfills even better. He also pointed us to Ruth and showed us that she was a picture of all the lost and the outcasts who can find refuge and shelter in God's embrace and God's care. But he also pointed us to the workers in the field. And this is the part that I was challenged by. And Tim and I met in the week leading up to that. And we were chatting about the sermon. And and Tim was like, man, I just was really struck by these workers that were in the field that Boaz had. And he challenged us to work in God's fields. The fields that we've been entrusted with in such a way that reflects the true Lord of the harvest, that we would be the workers who would embrace the roots of this world, the outcasts and the lost, and show them the love and the care and the embrace of our saviour, our kinsman, redeemer. So we've been through chapter 1 and chapter 2 and chapter 3, and today we're going to finish off in chapter 4. So I'm not going to read through the whole chapter in one go like I often do. We're going to break, take it up in breaks. Um, but here's the first thing that I want you to notice. Verses 1 through 10. And I want to look at that we have a willing redeemer. A willing redeemer. Let's read just those 10 verses. I'm going to read from the Christian Standard Bible. Follow along with me in your own um, or on the screen. Boaz went to the gate of the town and sat down there. Soon the family redeemer Boaz had spoken about came by. Boaz said, come over here and sit down. So he went over and sat down. Then Boaz took ten men of the town's elders and said, sit here. And they sat down. He said to the redeemer... Naomi, who has returned from the territory of Moab, is selling the portion of the field that belonged to our brother Elimelech. I thought I should inform you. Buy it back in the presence of those seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you want to redeem it, do it. But if you do not want to redeem it, tell me so that I will know because there isn't anyone other than you to redeem it. And I am next after you. I want to redeem it, he answered. Then Boaz said, On the day you buy the field from Naomi, you will acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the wife of the deceased man, to perpetuate the man's name on his property. The redeemer replied, I can't redeem it myself, or I will ruin my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption because I can't redeem it. Now at an earlier period in Israel, a man removed his sandal and gave it to the other party in order to make any matter legally binding concerning the right of redemption or the exchange of property. This was the method of legally binding a transaction in Israel. So the redeemer removed his sandal and said to Boaz, buy back the property yourself. Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses today that I am buying from Naomi everything that belonged to Elimelech, Chilion and Marlon. I have also acquired Ruth, 
the Moabites, Marlon's widow, as my wife, to perpetuate the deceased man's name on his property so that his name will not disappear amongst his relatives or from the gate of his hometown. You are witnesses today. Now, Tim explained a bit about the role of a family redeemer last week. If you weren't here, uh, this was a pretty significant role in the culture and customs of Israel where if someone, uh, a man died without children, uh, that there was a close relative to that man who would take on the responsibility of both that man's property and that man's responsibility, whether that's business, but he would also um, take on responsibility for caring for the widow of that man. Especially if there was no children, it was important that that man's family lineage would continue and so she would have children to the future that would legally belong to her former husband by name. Um, so in this situation that we've got in the opening part of chapter 4, Boaz and Ruth have already met, remember, they, they met in the harvest field um, and they sort of had this plan and Boaz said, listen, I'll sort something out in the morning. That's how chapter 3 finished. Ruth, I'll sort something out for you. And so this is Boaz sorting out what was going to happen. He knew that there was somebody else who was more closely related to the family who should have been the kinsman redeemer. They were first choice to be kinsman redeemer. And so he sets up this meeting in the town gate. He gets all the right people involved, the, the authorities, the town elders. There's a crowd of people. Um, I wonder what this other kinsman redeemer thought. He's just going out for his morning walk. Uh, Boaz says, hey, brother, take a seat. He goes, oh, sure, let's have a chat. And then all of a sudden he's inviting the town elders to come. He's like, is this an intervention or something? Or what's going on? There's a crowd gathering and Boaz lays out the proposition. Hey, do you want to buy all of Elimelech's land? Now, the family redeemer would have got that at a really significantly discounted rate. This guy is just going, well, I get a chance now to buy cheap land, increase my own holdings. So, you bet, I'm in. Right? I'll do that, no problem. And Boaz says to him, no problem at all. By the way, it's a package deal. You get the land, but you must also now take responsibility for the Moabites. This, this woman from Moab, who remember, Moab was an enemy of Israel. They, they, were, they were not on friendly terms. So this close family redeemer starts to get cold feet. Okay, I'll get the land, but now I actually have to take responsibility for this woman from Moab. And any children that I have with her will not really legally belong to me. But now he's thinking these children might in fact chew into my inheritance. And so he's now starting to feel insecure about the whole thing. And he says, you know what, I'm going to keep my sandals on my own feet. Thank you very much. There's no way in the world I'm going to do this. And um, a deal is struck. He says, no, I don't want the land. I'm backing out of my responsibilities. Boaz is the next in line. Now, remember this point that I wanted to make is that Boaz is a willing redeemer. This is important. That The first guy legally was the right person to redeem Ruth. 
and the family and all the land. But there's something really significant that he lacked. He didn't want to. He didn't want to. He was not willing. So in this picture that we have that that Tim pointed us to in last week's chapters of Boaz being this sort of willing family redeemer, the important word in that is Boaz was willing. Boaz desired. Boaz was not feeling obligated to this. He was not sort of just going, here's Ruth's desperate situation. Well, I don't really want to do this, but someone better. I guess it has to be me. That's not Boaz's position. Boaz looks at Ruth, and remember, it says that he was filled with compassion towards her. That he said, I know about what you've done for your mother-in-law. I know the way that you've cared for her. Boaz had compassion at Ruth's circumstances, and he wanted. He was a willing redeemer. I want to... I want to make the jump here between the picture of Boaz as a kinsman redeemer and I want to redirect your attention back to your redeemer. What makes Jesus so spectacularly beautiful to me is that he saw me. He saw you as well, but I can only speak to my own sin. He saw me in my desperation. He saw me in my depths. He knew everything about my life, all the hidden things, all the things that filled me with shame, all my failures, all my regrets. Jesus saw it all. And he was my willing redeemer. He saw your sin. He saw your desperate state. He saw your failures. He saw all the things that fill you with shame. And he saw you and he desired you. He loves you. I love that verse. It's well known. The verse that we had quoted this morning in the testimony. When Paul was looking at his life, and he just went, what a wretched man I am. Who will save me from this life of sin, right? And I was expecting you to read the next verse, but thanks be to God, but I love the fact that you went to John 3.16. Because that's where it starts, right? But for God so loved the world. It doesn't say that God was so obligated to his creation doesn't say that God just sort of had a legally contracted relationship with us as his creation, that he just went, well, they've stuffed up again, now I've got to do something. We have a willing redeemer. For the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross. The joy that was set before him. The joy of re-establishing a relationship with a fallen creation, with children who had wandered away. We have a willing redeemer. You have a Jesus who pursues you. Do you remember the story that Jesus tells about the good shepherds? He says, you know, there's there's a shepherd, and he draws this analogy who settles down for the night and counts up his sheep. That was a a customary thing to do for shepherds to do in the first century of Israel. 
They were responsible for a certain amount of sheep. At night, they would put them into a pen. They would often sleep across the doorway of the pen just to ensure that no robbers or wolves or whatever would come in to ravage the sheep. But just as they're settling down for the night, he does a quick head count. And uh, there's one missing. One missing. Ah, what's one? I've got 99 more, right? 99's pretty good. 99's good enough. That's not how the story goes, right? Jesus says no. The shepherd then goes out to find the one lost sheep. And when he finds him, he puts him on his shoulders and he carries him home. You have a willing redeemer. Jesus who loves you, who pursues you, who finds you and will place you on his shoulders and will carry you home. What I want you to notice next after this opening interaction at the town gates between Boaz, the kinsman redeemer who negates his role and says, no, I, I'm not doing it. And, uh, you know, there's this really weird custom where Boaz says, you know, we've got to make this official. Come on, give me a sandal. All right, so they take off shoes. They hold their shoes up and everyone just goes, yay, they're holding shoes, good job. All right, no one can back out of this now. And... Um, And the people respond. So it's just two verses, but what I want you to notice is that what they respond to is actually an astoundingly insightful prophetic word. You have a look at verses 11 and 12. So we had a willing redeemer, and now we have a prophetic word. Verse 11 and verse 12. All the people who were at the gate, at the city gate, including the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is entering your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built the house of Israel. May you be powerful in Ephrathah and your name well known in Bethlehem. May your house become like the house of Perez, the son Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring the Lord will give you by this young woman. The the whole town, remember this is in the town of Bethlehem. The whole town gathers together. The city elders are there. They see this interaction, this exchange that takes place where Boaz steps forward and says, I am willing to be Ruth's redeemer. I am willing to care for the family of Elimelech. I am willing to take on the responsibility for Naomi. I am willing to rescue them from their disaster. And all the people in the town see this and they they call out, they cry out this, um, this pronouncement of blessing on Boaz and on Ruth and their offspring. And it's quite an incredible um, prophetic word about what will happen through this family. Have a look at the first part of it. We're witnesses, right? May the Lord make the woman who is entering your house like Rachel and Leah. We don't have time to go back all through the history in this, but they together built the house of Israel. What they're saying is we, we are praying, we are pronouncing this blessing 
over you that your family, your offspring, would be like our forebears who built the house of Israel. To skip forward to the end of the chapter, we find out that Boaz and Ruth do indeed have a son. Who then goes on to have his own son. From which comes King David. Who establishes and builds Israel and they develop their own identity. But, but we know that even greater than David, there came another son of David. A little baby that was born in the very town where this blessing was pronounced. The town of Bethlehem. The true king of Israel. The true redeemer of this world. Who is building his people and creating for himself a bride that will one day he will meet and greet face to face. Our redeemer. That we will stand with. He is building his people. And this pronouncement of blessing that was announced at the gates of Bethlehem was to say the very same thing. May the Lord make the woman who is entering your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built the house of Israel. May you be powerful in Ephrathah, the region around Bethlehem, and your name well known in Bethlehem. Are you kidding? Your name well known in Bethlehem. I could almost guarantee that you could go nearly to anywhere in our very secularized nation today who have forgotten so much about what their God has done for them. And yet, if you were to say, name the first thing that comes to mind when I play, say the word Bethlehem. I reckon there's a pretty good chance that someone's going to say to you, oh, I don't know, is that where Jesus was born? Right? His name became well known in Bethlehem, that's for sure. Verse 12 says, May your house become like the house of Perez, the son of that Tamar bore to Judah. Because of the offspring the Lord will give you by this young woman. God has had a history of bringing in broken people and doing amazing things in them. Earlier this year, we did a series here, if you remember, where we looked at the five women that are included in Matthew's genealogy at the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew. Ruth was one of them. Tamar was another one of them. The ability that God has to take broken and desperate situations people who seem to be outcast, people who seem to be forgotten, people who seem to be on the margins, and God has an amazing way of including, of bringing them in and entwining them, weaving them into his own story of how he is redeeming the world. So we've had a willing redeemer, We've had a prophetic word about a saviour, a redeemer, who is building for himself a people of which you are a part of, if you know him this morning. This blessing is still being fulfilled even today. And then finally in this chapter, we have from verse 13 onwards, and we see here 
the seed for a king. So let's read it together from verse 13 down to the end of the chapter. Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. He slept with her and the Lord granted conception to her and she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, remember Ruth's mother-in-law, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you without a family redeemer today. May his name become well known in Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. Indeed, your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Naomi took the child, placed him on her lap and became his nanny. The neighborhood women said, a son has been born to Naomi and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, who was the father of David. Verse 18, now these are the family records of Perez. Let's go way back in history here. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. If we wanted to keep reading that genealogy, we just go across to Matthew chapter 1. That genealogy continues and it goes all the way down until we get to who gave birth to Jesus. In this relationship, in this story that we've been reading of Ruth, an outcast, a foreigner, someone that had at the beginning of the story no hope, no future and no security. God was at work in her life. God was redeeming him for herself. And he does that through a redeemer, Boaz, who showed us a much better picture of a better redeemer that we have in Jesus. And we can see that God is doing the same today. He's taking the broken and the outcast, those that feel like they've been marginalized. And he says, no, you are a part of my people. And he's redeeming them in through his redeemer, Jesus Christ. In the story of Ruth, as Boaz and she settle into their new family home, they have a son. I wonder if they could ever have imagined what God would do through their family. But in just a couple of generations, David, a little shepherd boy, would hear God calling his voice and would obediently follow him. Despite the obstacles, despite who stood against him and says, I will honour my God. I wonder if Ruth could have known that as she was looking down at this tiny little baby, Obed. I wonder if Naomi could have realised what God was doing. But in that child, there was a seed for the future king of Israel. But not only that, that one day from David's very own lineage, from Obed's very own lineage, from Ruth's very own lineage, would come the Redeemer of the entire world. Your kinsman, Redeemer. The Son of God who steps in and says, no, I desire you. 
If you are outcast this morning, if you feel like I don't fit, there's something wrong, I feel broken inside, then I want you to hear this morning that you have a willing redeemer. One who doesn't feel like he's obligated to you, but one who desires you and is inviting you even this morning. Come in. Come in. I've made a way for you to be included. And that the blessing that was pronounced at the gates of Bethlehem in this story in Ruth, that there would be one who would come to build his own people, that Jesus is doing that even today. That brick by brick, Stone by stone, he's pulling together not just a house for himself, but Jesus says, a bride for myself. One that I can be in communion with forever. And he's saying, you can be a part of that. And that we see in this story a beautiful picture, a roadmap for what God was doing amongst his people. That even in the most mundane, in one sense of stories... Maybe you feel, my story isn't that special. I just work the barley fields. I'm just, I'm just doing my job. I'm just trying to be a mum. Dads, you, I'm just trying to make ends meet and, and provide for my family. Nothing that special about my life. You have no idea what God may do with the faithfulness of this moment the faithfulness of what you do next, of the choices that you make now, even the most simple and mundane things of everyday life, what God may do and what God is doing for his people. So I've loved this story of Ruth. Just four chapters, a beautiful love story, yes. A love story which we can say, isn't it wonderful to see the faithfulness of Ruth or the the loyalty of Ruth or the generosity of Boaz, all those things are true. And we could learn lessons about loyalty and we can learn lessons about generosity. But more than those things, I want you to see a picture of Jesus this morning, of a redeemer that we have, a redeemer that desires you, a redeemer that is building a people for himself and a redeemer that does things through the very ordinary lives of people who are willing to say, I will go where you go. I'll die where you die. I'll be with your people. I'll make your God my God. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this beautiful story. A very short image, a window into the life of your people in a very dark period of time. But, Lord, I thank you for what it shows us today. Thank you that you speak into dark moments in our life. Thank you that you help us see that it is better to have nothing if we have you. That you are faithful. That you are a willing redeemer. And that you bring hope and security. That you bring a future. You you bring something that we can't even imagine right now. Because you have given us Jesus. So we bless Ruth. We thank you for her faithfulness. We thank you for Boaz, who was willing to be that redeemer. But we thank you that this story is included for us so that we might look up and, Jesus, we might see you. 
Maybe there's someone here today who it strikes them that they, they are a bit like Ruth, that they need this Redeemer. Then this, can I encourage you? You have a willing Redeemer right now. Don't let it wait. Don't hold off. Don't think that there'll be time for that later. Right now, walk to your Redeemer. Go to His feet. Look to Him and say, I find my security and my hope in you. No one else. And you will find that He will embrace you. He will not turn you away. He will hold you and He'll say, you're mine. And I will look after you for the days of your life and beyond. If that's something that you need to do today, then I'm going to sit down the front here at the end of the service. Come and see me. Come and talk to someone that you know here. If you'd rather do that, that's fine. But let us talk with you and pray with you. And and we'd like to help you on that journey.